Hey everyone and welcome back to Heretical. It's a beautiful sunny summer day where I am. It's actually September so I don't know if that counts as summer but feels like summer here in South Carolina but I hope wherever you're listening it's super sunny and summer over there or if it's not well then too bad I honestly don't know what to say I guess but anyway thank you for coming to this episode of the podcast so we've been in a series about worship so in the first episode we looked at worship overall what it was an overall philosophy of worship that we can get from the bible and sort of deconstructing some of these cultural myths about worship and talking about how worship is about the lord our focus should be on him and not on ourselves not on how we feel um it should be done in truth the songs we sing should be theologically accurate all sorts of things like that. And then in the next episode, we looked at worship in the Old Testament. How does God progressively reveal through the law, the prophets, and the writings, the the doctrine of worship? And so we're going to continue on that in this episode. We're going to talk about the worship in the New Testament. And the reason this is so important is our doctrine always has to come from Scripture. Because God, God has infinite intelligence. Anything that humans come up with, there's going to be limited intelligence. Any sort of advice you can get from a human is only going to go so far. But God knows everything. He knows everything perfectly and accurately. And so what better place to get our information from than from the Lord himself? And so the reason we study scripture is because that is the only infallible basis for our doctrine and for our ideas about worship. And so let's start off with the Gospels, those first four books of the New Testament, the biographies of Jesus. And so I'm going to be taking these sort of chronologically. And so the I'm not going to be going Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. I'm going to be skipping back and forth between these Gospels and looking at what um, sort of along the timeline of Jesus's life, how we see this idea of worship revealed. And so starting in Luke chapter one, we see that this angel comes and tells Zechariah they're going to have a kid named John the Baptist. And then Zechariah's wife, Elizabeth, her cousin Mary, is also told she's going to have a child. And that child will be Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. And so Mary responds to this by breaking out into song. In Luke 1, 46 through 45, it starts off saying, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And this goes on for another several verses. And so this first expression of worship we see in the Gospels is Mary worshiping in response to the fact that she will be the mother of the Savior of the world. And it's interesting, this this is worship to God the Father. But we are also going to see worship to Jesus Christ the Son, even in his infancy. So going to Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. And so here we see that Jesus is worshipped even as a child, which is sort of wild. And, And this is an important part of our doctrine of Jesus Christ. Because there's this heresy out there that says that Jesus was just this ordinary human until God's spirit came upon him. And that was when he became divine. And that that doctrine is clearly heretical. It, It does not go with scripture whatsoever. What we know is that Jesus, from the very beginning, he was God. And so this verse shows that even when he was an infant, 
these people were worshiping him as God. And so Herod claims he'll worship Jesus as well in, in verse 8. But what we find out is that Herod doesn't actually wor- want to worship Jesus, that he actually wants to kill him. And so God is going to send an angel to reveal to these wise men in a dream to go another way when they're coming back from seeing Jesus. But in Matthew 2:11, it says, And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And so they're, they're treating this baby, this little child, as a king. And by worshiping him, they're treating him as a divine being. And so they understand, we, we don't know how much they actually understood the significance of who Jesus was, but at least they, they have a hint of who he is. And so we see Jesus being worshiped as God, even from the time he was a little child, which is just so amazing. So moving on. There's not a whole lot more about worship as far as Jesus's early life, because the Gospels don't talk about Jesus's early life that much. But we do see in Matthew 4, 8 through 10, this is after Jesus has been baptized, and this is the beginning of his public ministry. And there's a time where he is in the desert. He's wandering in the wilderness, fasting. And it says in Matthew 4, starting in verse 8, actually, let me back up and give the backstory. So while he's fasting, the devil comes to him. And he's trying to get Jesus to sin. He's trying to tempt Jesus. And so he gives him all these different tests. He knows Jesus is hungry. So he says, to speak to this rock to become bread. And, you know, if you're God, you know, that's going to happen. It'll become bread, right? So why don't you just speak to this rock and make it become bread if you're hungry? And Jesus answers by saying, man shall not live by bread alone. And then the devil tempts him again by saying, you know, throw yourself off of this high place um, because Psalm says that God will catch you, right? And Jesus says, do not put the Lord to your test. And what's interesting is all three times when Jesus responds to the devil here, he's quoting from the book of Deuteronomy. That may be a book that we aren't a huge fan of, that we often want to skip past because it can seem boring at times. And yet this is what Jesus uses to fight the devil. But coming to Matthew 4, verse 8, it says, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And so this is interesting, and we're going to see a little bit more of this later. But Jesus is talking about worshiping God. He's talking about worshiping the Father. And so this is interesting that even though we understand from Scripture that Jesus is fully God, if you want evidence of that in John chapter 1 and elsewhere in Scripture, but even though we know that Jesus is fully God, even Jesus worships God the Father. The Son worships the Father, which I think is really fascinating. Um, so moving on, we see in John chapter 4, so again, this is not Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, we're skipping around, and this is going to be roughly in order that this happened in Jesus's life. But John chapter 4, Jesus meets this woman at a well. He goes to this well in Samaria where most Jews wouldn't want to go. Like the Jews and the Samaritans had beef with each other, and they, they wouldn't even want to talk. And yet Jesus goes to this well in the middle of the day, and this woman comes, and Jesus starts talking to her. And he's beginning to unfold this idea of living water and the fact that as this woman comes to the well and drinks physical water, she's going to thirst again. And yet she has spiritual needs. She has spiritual thirst. And if she drinks from the living water, which is Jesus, she will never thirst again. 
And so Jesus is unfolding this to her. And he says something really random in verse 16. It says, Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I've had no, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And so Jesus says something that most of us wouldn't say. This is a very uncomfortable conversation because he essentially brings up her, her immorality. You know, He knows without even having met her before, because he's God, he knows that she's been living in this immorality. And yet what we see is he doesn't beat her over the head about this. Like he, he mentions it and he's not saying it's okay or that she can continue to be this way. But when she changes the subject, he doesn't continue to talk to her about that. He begins to talk to her about salvation and worship. And so in verse 19, the woman, she's obviously uncomfortable. She tries to change the subject. So when she's, when he's just said that she has had five husbands, she says, the woman said to her, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Great way to change the topic. But she continues. She says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And so up to this point, there had been a specific place where people were supposed to engage in the rituals of worship for Yahweh, the God of Israel. And what this woman is saying is as Samaritans, they didn't want to worship in Jerusalem. They wanted to do it their own way, according to their own traditions, not according to the traditions of the Jews. And this is what Jesus says to her in verse 21. He says, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And so he makes this statement that there's one day where people aren't going to have to go to a mountain to worship. They're going to be able to worship God from any place in the world. But what's important is the way in which we worship. So Jesus is sort of ending this idea that we have to go to a specific place to worship, but he's not ending the requirement of a proper heart posture for worship. He says, we must worship in spirit and truth. And I especially want to mention that part about worshiping in truth. We have to worship God according to who he is. We don't get to decide the way we worship. God is revealed in scripture the way he wants to be worshiped. As we said in the previous episode, There are proper ways to worship God and improper ways. And so we have to worship God according to the truth of Scripture. We have to worship the God who actually exists and not our own version of God, our own watered-down or politically correct version of God. We have to worship the God who is. We must worship Him in truth. So moving on from there, I want to look at Matthew chapter 6. So this is in the middle of what's known as the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus, one of Jesus's great sermons, and his disciples come to him and say, Lord, teach us to pray. So Matthew 6, starting in verse 9, he says, pray then like this. And so this is known as the Lord's Prayer. He's giving this model or template for how we should pray. And he says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
So this is not worship specific, but it does give us some things to think about when we are worshiping. He starts off by saying, our Father in heaven. And so there's, it starts off by coming to God in reverence. That, that phrase, hallowed be your name, it's saying, may your name be regarded as holy. And so as we approach God in prayer, and likewise when we approach him in worship, we should be approaching him with reverence, understanding that this is the divine, transcendent God of the universe who created all things. And yet the very first words it says, our Father, we address him as our Father. So we recognize that this grand creator, this amazing God beyond our comprehension is also our Father, that he is in personal relationship with us. And so this is a really wild paradigm for worship when we understand that, yes, this God is a God whom we must reverence, whom we must um, come before with fear and trembling, and yet he is our Father. And so we can come to him. We can even come to him boldly, as we're going to see in the book of Hebrews when we get to that part. But I think the Lord's Prayer gives us a good template for, for worship. Before going into our needs or what we want from God, or even asking God that for his wants to happen, your kingdom come, your will be done. Even before all that, we should come to God recognizing who he is, that he is the creator and that he is our father. And so let's move on from there. So I want to move to a passage in the book of Mark, Mark 7, 1 through 13. And so the background of this story is that the Pharisees are coming to him, and there are some scribes who had come from Jerusalem. And while they're eating it with him, they see that the disciples are eating with their hands without having washed them before. And there's this tradition among the Pharisees and the Jews in general that they have to wash their hands first, and they have to wash their hands a specific way according to a certain tradition before they eat. And so these, these scribes and Pharisees ask him, he says, they say, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And so they have this tradition. They have this idea of these rituals that they're supposed to do. And, and this is what Jesus says to him. He says, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And so he's essentially telling them they've, they've added all these things onto scripture. They've all added on all these traditions. And that is taking them away from actually worshiping God as God wants to be worshiped. And, and he continues to expand on this, how there are certain rules or certain commandments that God has. And yet because of their traditions that they've added on, they're essentially exempting themselves from the traditions of God or from the rules of God with all the traditions they've added on. And so, again, while this is not worship specific, I think it's very important that our heart has to be in the right place. He says, in vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. And so if we're holding to tradition, if we're holding to ritual without actually having our heart in the right place, our worship is in vain. It's empty. And so we always have to make sure that we're worshiping God, number one, according to the way he wants us to worship, and number two, with genuine hearts and not according to some ritualistic tradition. So fast-forwarding in Jesus' life to the, the last week of his life. So we have what's known as the Passion Week, and this starts off with what's known as the Triumphal Entry, which we celebrate today on the day of Palm Sunday. So Jesus has gotten his disciples to go find a colt to, for him to ride on, and 
as he's riding this cult into the town, and this is in Matthew 21, if you want to look it up, that the, these crowds, these people um, in Jerusalem or on the way to Jerusalem, they're putting palm branches from trees and spreading them on the road. And it says, And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So these people are worshiping him. They're super excited that this king is coming into Jerusalem. And some of them probably recognize that this is the Messiah, or at least they have an idea of it. And so he's coming in triumphantly, and yet they don't realize that he's going to suffer and die as a suffering servant. He's going to be sacrificed as a lamb. And so they they have some idea of who Jesus is, but they are way off in other ways. But they're still able to recognize that in some way he's sent from the Lord, and they're they're recognizing that and worshiping him in this passage. But the chief priests aren't having it. Like the, the religious people aren't a fan of this. And so in verses 15 through 16, it says, When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And so Jesus is saying, like, even the little kids are going to worship him. Like as he's walking through, these little kids are worshiping him, and that's a beautiful thing. That is divinely ordained by God, and it's a wonderful thing to behold. So moving along, we see in Matthew 26, 6 through 13, that Jesus is at Bethany. He's in the home of a dude named Simon the leper. And there is this woman that comes up to him. It says she has an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. And what we find out later is that this this thing was about the it was about a year's salary like this thing costs as much as a person would make in a year so this is super super expensive and look what this woman does it says and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table and when the disciples saw it they were indignant saying why this waste for this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor and so they have a good idea they're like hey you know let's not waste this let's sell it and give it to the poor but here's the thing. Jesus actually recognizes the deeper truth to what's going on. It says, but Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. And pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And so she makes this very extravagant uh, extravagant action towards Jesus. She just takes something that could have been a whole year's worth of money and she pours it out on Jesus in this lavish, extravagant expression of worship. And I think that's a good lesson for us, that our worship should be lavish, that should be extravagant. Now by that, I don't mean it should be weird. I don't mean it should be unhinged, but our worship should should be a sacrifice in some ways. You know, there's one place in the Old Testament where David says, I will not offer to the Lord sacrifices that cost me nothing. Like this guy was trying to give him these uh, these animals for sacrifice for free, and David's like, no, I want to pay for these. I'm not going to give God something that didn't cost me anything. Worship should be costly. It should cost us something. So maybe practically for you, that means taking a little time out of your day that you normally would use to relax or spend on yourself or spend on doing something productive to 
take that time and lavish it on the Lord Jesus in worship instead of on yourself. Like worship should sometimes be costly. It should be extravagant. So after this, Jesus is taken to the cross. He is crucified. He is buried in a tomb. And then on the third day, he rises again. And he begins to appear to the disciples who are shocked. They're shocked to see that Jesus has risen from the dead. And so coming to Matthew chapter 28, starting in verse 16, it says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so these guys are worshipping him like, If he's risen from the dead, this obviously is the son of God. He obviously is legit. And so they're worshiping him, and yet they still have some doubt. And I love this because these guys are all sent later on as apostles to spread the world to the rest of spread the word to the rest of the world. And so these guys have a special place. They are the apostles of Jesus Christ. And yet they're doubting him in this verse. And it's just it speaks so much to the love and to the graciousness of Jesus that They didn't have perfect faith, and yet he still used them in such a powerful way to spread his message. And this is illustrated by the fact that right after this statement, he gives them the Great Commission. He's going to tell them to make disciples of all nations, to baptize them, and to teach them Jesus' commandments. And he gives them the promise that he'll always be with them. And so this is just a wonderful example that we worship Jesus, but we do so imperfectly. We are unable to worship him as he should be worshipped. We are unable to worship him in a completely correct manner, and yet he still uses us for his glory, which I think is such a wonderful thing to reflect on. And so the last thing I want to look at in the Gospels is in Luke 24, 50 through 53. It says, And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and that we're continually in the temple blessing God. So their response to the events of the resurrection and Jesus appearing to them and ascending into heaven, their response is to worship him and not just worship him once, to worship him continually. It says they were in the continually in the temple blessing God. And I think this is a perfect segue ending with this verse from Luke because Luke, the author of that book, also wrote the book of Acts. Luke and Acts are sort of like a two-part Uh, work of art. And so let's move on to the book of Acts. So we see that after Jesus has ascended that the disciples in chapter 2, they're all together in one place. They're seeking the Lord and the Lord comes upon them. The Holy Spirit uh, brings uh, this gift of speaking in tongues to them and they begin to speak in tongues and people hear it. They're like, hey, we hear them proclaiming the glory of God in our language. And That opens them up to hear the message of the gospel. 3,000 people get saved and the church begins to grow. And this is what it says in Acts 2, 42 through 47. After all this, it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. 
Now you may say this, this doesn't talk about singing or worship. This isn't like worship specific, but we often use the term worship to talk about the Sunday service or sort of the order of what goes on in the gathering of God's people. And I think this gives a very clear example of what's supposed to happen when God's people come together. It's talking about how they're devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. And so for us, this is devoting ourselves to Scripture, listening to the Scripture being taught by Bible teachers. That is worship. Like, we should be listening with worshipful ears. It says the fellowship. Part of worship is that we fellowship with other believers. We show love to other believers. It also mentions the breaking of bread. So this could refer to sharing a common meal, or it could be specifically the communion meal. Either way, it's an important part of the gathering of the early church. And then it says, and the prayers. And so prayer is also one of those essential components of the early church. And so this is what worship should look like. It's not just singing, but it involves listening to the teaching of the word. It involves uh, fellowshipping with one another, communion, praying. It involves all these things. So going on from there, we come to Acts chapter 3. And what we see is there is this lame man sitting at the entrance to one of the gates of Jerusalem, or one of the gates of the temple. And he sees Peter and John, and he asks them for money. And they're like, hey, we don't have money, but here's what I do have. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. So this guy gets up, his legs are healed, even though he's been there for like 40 years. And it says, And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And so his immediate response is worship. When God does a miracle, when God moves in his life, he worships. And I think this is super important for us to to remember. Like when God does move in our lives, when we've been praying for something for a long time, maybe even for years, when we, we finally get it, we can forget to give glory to God. We often are like, okay, great, I have what I need, and we just move on. But no, we have to always remember when we get that miracle or that breakthrough, we have to always give worship to God for that miracle. And this is a perfect example of that. And so we see some other examples of worship in the book of Acts. I'm going to go through a couple of these quickly. Um, but we see it in Acts chapter 10, verses 44 through 48, where people are speaking in tongues. And it says they're extolling God. And so this, the content of speaking in tongues, if someone is speaking in tongues, what they should be doing is they're praising God. At least in this context, it seems that what they're saying should be the glories of God, speaking of the glory of God. And we see that as well earlier in Acts chapter 2. And so if someone is speaking in tongues according to the biblical model, what their speech should contain is glory and praise to God. So moving on to Acts chapter 13, we see that some of the disciples are gathered together and there it says they're worshiping the Lord and fasting. And then the Holy Spirit tells them to set apart Barnabas and Saul for some work to which he has called them. And so then they fast and pray and then they lay their hands on them and send them off. And so it's in worshiping God and fasting that the Holy Spirit speaks to them, that he gives them the specific guidance for sending them out on mission. And so I think that's important for us to think about, that if we're looking for guidance from God, looking for guidance from the Holy Spirit, sometimes we should be worshiping. Sometimes he chooses to reveal his will while we are in worship. And so after this, they go on some missions and they're spreading the gospel to people. And we see in Acts chapter 16, and this is really cool. 
So after they've been imprisoned, they've been wrongly imprisoned because they cast out a demon and that made people mad because people were essentially making money off the demon. You can read the whole story in Acts 16 if you want to, but they're thrown in jail. And anyone who's thrown in jail would usually be pretty upset. Like this would not be a place where you want to be. But this is what it says in Acts 16, 25. It says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. I just love that. Like they're, they're in prison. They're praising God. They're singing hymns. They're singing worship songs. You know, it totally contrasts with what you would expect them to be feeling in that instance, in that circumstance. And the other prisoners are listening. Like they're worshiping and the other people are hearing this praise. It says, and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaking shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened and so because of this because of their worship god responds with freeing them and not only freeing them but freeing everyone around them the other prisoners were most likely not believers and so they were sitting and listening to the praise and yet god's response to that praise was to set everyone free now this is not a guarantee that Worship is going to fix your immediate problems. It's not going to immediately solve all the circumstances you're in. But sometimes God chooses to respond to worship by giving freedom, by giving blessing. And so this should always be our response. Like again, we talked about in the last episode, the example of Job, when everything is taken away from him, his first response is to worship. And we see that with Paul and Silas as well, that their response to trial is to worship. And so that's the book of Acts. That's worship in the book of Acts. And I think it's a really great example because it's one thing to look at worship in the Gospels. Like there is some great teaching from Jesus on worship. So we're given the instructions for how to worship. And we see some people worshiping him in those instances. But it's a whole lot different to worship Jesus when he's around than to worship Jesus when he's in heaven and you can't see him. And so Acts gives us great examples of what it looks like as the church to worship Jesus when he is no longer on earth with us, when he's ascended to heaven. So that's the book of Acts. And next we're going to look at the Pauline epistles or the letters that Paul wrote to the believers. And so I want to start off with Romans 1, 18 through 25. And this is a little bit of a longer passage, but this, this is a very good sort of philosophical underpinning of worship right here. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. And so what we see here is that humans are inverting the the standard or the model of worship. And instead of worshiping God, they're worshiping what God created. 
And as a result of this, because they're worshiping the things God created, God allows them to be darkened in their mind. They become stupid. They become immoral because they have chosen to worship things other than God. So moving on in the book of Romans, we see in Romans eleven thirty three, after Paul has just done this incredible job laying out the entire gospel and God's amazing plan for how he's going to reconcile the Jews, the nation of Israel to himself, Paul says this, he says, Oh, the depths of the wisdom, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So our response to the glories of God revealed in the gospel should be worship. And the next verse right after this expands on what this worship looks like. In Romans 12.1, he says, I appeal to you, therefore. So therefore, on the basis of all this stuff that has gone before, he's saying, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So a living sacrifice, giving ourselves wholly and completely to God, surrendering to him, obeying him. This is what real worship looks like. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So everything in our life is supposed to be worship. Every part of what we do should be an expression of worship to God. Paul says in Colossians 3.16-17, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then the final one I want to look at in the Pauline epistles is 1 Timothy 2.8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. And so he, he desires that this expression of worship be seen. First of all, he's talking about the men, like the men should be worshiped. They should lift their hands. And he desires that this happens in every single place. And so that's a brief overview of Paul's teaching on worship in those Pauline epistles. And so for the next section or before the next section, we have the book of Hebrews. Now, this is an interesting one because it's usually grouped with the Pauline epistles, but some people question whether it was actually written by Paul. So I have it here sort of in its own section. And honestly, it should be in its own section because it contributes so much to our understanding of worship. Um, especially as far as worshiping Jesus, worshiping God the Son. So in Hebrews 1.6 it says, And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. And so this is, there's this understanding that even the angels worship Jesus Christ as God. Jesus Christ is the God of the angels. He's the God that they render worship to. And in Hebrews 4, he talks a little bit about our worship of Jesus. It says, Since we then, sorry, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So it says he's he's not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Like he's been tempted in the same way as we are, and yet he didn't fail. He didn't sin in those instances. So it says in verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace 
that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so first of all, we need to remember who we are worshiping. As we approach God's throne, we need to remember the God, the wonderful God we are worshiping and the Savior he has sent to deliver us from our sin. But what this says is that we can approach God's throne with confidence. And so when we are worshiping, this is not specifically about worship, but this gives us this understanding that we can worship God with confidence. We don't have to be afraid. There should be this healthy reverence, this reverential fear, but there shouldn't be terror, that kind of fear. We can approach God's God's throne with confidence because we have been accepted through Jesus Christ. And finally, Hebrews in chapter 12, verses 28 through 29 says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So again, worship on the basis of who God is, that this God, yes, he is our God, our Father, and yet he is this transcendent God who is a consuming fire. So we have to approach him with reverence and awe. And it says, let us offer to God acceptable worship. So again, some worship is acceptable and some is not. And we're going to talk about in the next episode, what, how should we worship in the church? What, according to scripture, are acceptable forms of worship? Um, but now I want, to, I want to move on to the, what's known as the Catholic epistles. And this has nothing to do with the religion of Roman Catholicism. They're just called the Catholic epistles because the term Catholic means universal. It, it means all believers in the world. And so as opposed to these being letters written by Paul to a specific place, a lot of these letters don't have um, a specific audience that's listed. Or if there is, um, it can be expanded to a general audience. Really, all the all of the letters in the New Testament are to Christians in general, but these letters specifically have come to be known as the Catholic epistles. So looking at James chapter 1, verses 26 through 27, he says, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So it's easy for us to have the outward appearance of religion, to have an outward appearance of worship. And yet, if we are not obeying God, if we are not caring for those in need, it says that religion is worship. I mean, is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled, it says, is caring for those that are in need and keeping oneself unstained from the world. So other words, being holy. So God requires action and he requires holiness. If we do not have those things, our worship is trash. Our worship is not real. So moving on, 1 Peter 4.16 says, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. And so this is referencing persecution and saying, when you are persecuted, don't be ashamed of it, but glorify God. And so worship him. Again, our response to negative things happening in our lives should be worship. So one more passage that I want to look at um, before we finish up with the Catholic epistles is 1 John 5, 1 through 3. It says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So again, 
True worship, true love of God requires obedience and it requires loving others. If we are not loving others, if we are not walking in holiness and obedience, our worship is worthless. And I know I said that was going to be our last one, but I realized I have one more that I want to look at, and it's Jude 24 through 25, which says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. And so this is what's known as a doxology, and we see a lot of these in the New Testament, and I've skipped some of them. Um, another one you can look up is Ephesians three twenty through 21. But a lot of times after a major section or at the end of a book, a New Testament writer will end with this doxology, fixing our eyes or uh, directing our gaze right back to the Savior and worshiping him. And so I think that's a good place to end this episode. You might say, well, I'm leaving out Revelation. And yes, that's true. I feel like Revelation could have its own episode. So I'm just going to briefly go over that because there is just so much in here. But I'm going to go over Revelation quickly and then end the episode. You can probably tell that my voice is kind of hoarse. And so hopefully it hasn't been a terrible listening experience, but it's probably been suboptimal. Um, but Revelation, man, this like this this book is so filled with some amazing things about worship. And you just read it and like you stand in awe of what it's saying. And honestly, like more than any other book, like hearing the book of Revelation being spoken or reading it aloud myself, like it, it, it almost brings me to tears. Like there are things that are so beautiful in this book. I, I believe like the most beautiful words that humanity has ever heard are in the book of Revelation. And so I would just encourage you to read it. I think one of the greatest things for our worship is just to spend time in and meditate on the book of Revelation and what it says. And some specific passages I would direct you to for this, um, Revelation 1, especially verses 12 through 20, where it gives this, this stunning description of Jesus and just how victorious he is. Like it's it's such an amazing description that just sort of revolutionizes our understanding of Jesus. Like Yes, Jesus was fully human, and he was around his apostles and looked like a normal human. And yet we see this picture in Revelation that talks about just this victorious, divine Jesus that we worship. I would also recommend reading Revelation 4 and 5, which some of that goes into what's going on with the uh, beings that are around God's throne and how they're worshiping God, how they're, they worship Jesus. Revelation 7, 9 through 12 is this beautiful depiction of all of God's people worshiping Jesus, or at least this great multitude that's worshiping Jesus. Um, and then finally, Revelation 21, 1 through 4 is so beautiful because what John sees is he sees the new heaven and the, he sees a new heaven and a new earth. And it says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And this is such a beautiful closing to the Bible because it, it reminds us of what we saw in the book of Genesis, where man's relationship in Genesis 3 is broken with God. And as I stated at the beginning of that episode, our worship of God is flawed. Our worship is not as it should be because our relationship is flawed. Our relationship with him is not perfect because we are separated from him by sin. And even when we are brought near by the blood of Jesus, 
we are still living in these human bodies. We still have this struggle against the flesh. And so we can't see God as he is and can't worship him completely as he is. And yet we see in the book of Revelation that God is going to dwell with us, that this relationship between God and humanity will once again be restored and we will see him. We will see his glory and we will see his glory and we'll be able to worship him as he should be worshiped. And we will have this perfect restored relationship with him. And so we're going to end the episode on that note. So I hope this sparked some interest. I hope you go and read some of these passages in the book of Revelation. Again, Revelation 1, 4, and 5, Revelation 7, 9 through 12, Revelation 21, 1 through 4. Really, the whole book is beautiful, but these are some of the big parts that sort of connect with this idea of worship that I would want you to read. But um, hopefully you found this episode interesting. Again, sorry for the hoarseness of my voice in this episode. Hopefully it'll be better in the next episode. But I've got some exciting content for the next episodes. Um, the upcoming one is going to be about different styles of worship and what, what should worship look like in the church. So sort of applying what we've seen through the entirety of the Old and New Testament. How do we practically apply this and what should worship look like? And sort of getting into some of these debates about traditional and contemporary, about hymns versus gospel versus even having hip-hop in a worship service. Can we do that? Should we do that? We're going to discuss all those things and more. And then after that, an episode that I'm really super excited about is addressing the controversial question of can we sing songs by certain musical groups in church, certain groups that some people deem to be uh, unorthodox, groups like Bethel and Elevation and Hillsong and Maverick City. Can we sing these songs and worship? And I've actually been on both sides of those of that debate. I've gone to both extremes, and I think I've found a healthy biblical medium. And what I've noticed is the view I'm going to put forward in that episode is a view that I'm not hearing from a lot of people online. Like really, I've hear both extremes. You hear one extreme of people thinking one thing and people on the other extreme. And there really is no in-between. I really have not heard any people, maybe a couple, that articulate the same position that I'm going to articulate. And I'm sure there's more people out there, but hopefully this will be a contribution to that discussion because it's a more nuanced, more researched, and more well-thought-out view than a lot of what you see online. And I'm not trying to be prideful in saying that I'm, my view is better than theirs, but if you if you study it, it's definitely more nuanced than a lot of the vitriol and the hatred that you see online about this issue. Um, and then I'm thinking about expanding this series and doing an additional episode after that, where we look at different popular worship songs and sort of evaluate them. Like, how do they stand up to scripture? And are these good songs to worship? And a lot of, or good songs to use to worship. And a lot of these are, I think, great songs to use to worship, and I'm going to sort of recommend them as great ones for your worship set or for your worship playlist. Uh, so that's the plan for the rest of this series. I hope you tune in for the rest of the episodes. But either way, thank you so much for listening, and I hope you have a great rest of your week. Peace. <laughs>